0: This is Mesa Verde Voices, a podcast connecting modern people to the people who lived around Mesa Verde hundreds of years ago. And I'm your host, Kayla Woodward. This season, we're addressing some of the most common questions that visitors have at Mesa Verde National Park. And today, we're going to be talking about the largest villages in the Mesa Verde region. And you might be surprised to learn that they aren't the cliff dwellings. Located near the southeast corner of Mesa Verde National Park, tucked back in what's called Fuchs Canyon, is the largest cliff dwelling in North America, Cliff Palace. This stunning ancient village draws visitors from across the world to marvel at its incredibly precise masonry and architecture, rising up from the canyon slopes below. Protected for centuries by the massive sandstone roof above it, at first glance, there's a mystery about it. This city in what looks like the middle of nowhere, now appearing to stand empty and frozen in time. But what's missing from this story, or rather what's obscured from our view by hundreds of years of rain, snow, wind, and the regrowth of the pinyon juniper forest, are the even larger, even older stone villages that crowned the Mesa Tops, long before the people of Mesa Verde constructed the Alcove villages like Cliff Palace.
1: It's easy to think that these are the biggest villages that are in the area. This is
0: Donna Glowacki.
1: My name is Donna Glowacki, and I am an archaeologist, and I am also an associate professor at the University of Notre Dame in the Anthropology Department.
0: Donna has done extensive research in the Mesa Verde region, both within the National Park and in the surrounding valleys below.
1: In fact, not only within the park, but also very much outside of the park, there are many villages that are three, four, and five times larger than Cliff Palace or Longhouse, which are the two largest
0: cliff dwellings in in the park. If you've listened to Season 3 of this podcast, you'll remember that we talked about how vast and interconnected the Mesa Verde region was, with strong trade relationships, bonding the people living on the Mesa Verde with the large communities in the Montezuma Valley below.
1: One thing is to remember that where the cliff dwellings are is just a small area within a much larger social and environmental landscape. And there were Pueblo people living all over the Four Corners and across southwest Colorado. And it's important to remember that there was much more going
0: on. If this is your first visit or first exposure to Mesa Verde or to the ancestral Pueblo world, you may think that these people kind of existed on an island, so to speak, in these remote canyons.
1: But in fact, you know, parts of Cortez are built on top of older Ancestral Pueblo villages. Population estimates are tricky to do from the archeological record, but, you know, we think by the 1200s, there were as many as 15,000 or even more, some of the highest population estimates go all the way up to 30,000 people in the areas.
0: In the last episode, we looked at a very large expanse of time, beginning some 18,000 years ago as humans were first coming onto this continent, up to about 500 CE, as the ancestral Pueblo people were building pithouse communities across the Mesa Verde region.
2: Pueblo people lived in what's now Mesa Verde National Park for over 700 years. So during that time, it seems like their community structure changed several different times.
0: This is Jill Blumenthal.
2: I am Jill Blumenthal, and I am the education coordinator and volunteer program manager at Mesa Verde National Park.
0: So, if we start back from where we left off in that timeline of history at Mesa Verde. So, when people first settled on the mesa
2: in the 600s, they lived in what we call pit houses. And pit houses were wooden structures that were covered by mud adobe. And pit houses, archaeologists use this term, semi subterranean which basically just means that they were built partly above the ground and partly under the ground, so roughly half and half.
0: These pithouses tend to be constructed in groups. Usually about eight to 10 pithouses together might've formed a community. This era of building pithouses lasted about 150 years, and then the architecture began to evolve. They eventually split that pithouse into two separate structures.
2: And so part of the pithouse went fully above the ground, and was built as what we call a room block, so kind of a rectangular, fully above-ground structure. And then the other part of the pit house went fully underground. It was a pit structure that ultimately became what we know as a kiva.
0: A kiva, in ancestral times, was an underground multipurpose room, usually round in shape with an entrance in the center of the roof and accessed using a ladder. Today, kivas are still used in descendant communities, Though now they're reserved for religious use only, and so over time we see this shift from pit houses to room blocks with kivas,
2: and the groupings of these rooms and kivas would form a village that we would call a pueblo. So, from around the 1000s until probably in late in the 1100s, people built these large, multi-storied pueblo villages on the mesa tops. And then during the final years in Mesa Verde, people place some of these Pueblo villages in the cliffs, and so we call them cliff dwellings. And the cliff dwellings do only represent about the final hundred years of that time frame.
0: Okay, so how do these mesa-top villages really compare in size to the seemingly massive cliff dwellings that Mesa Verde is known for? Well, let's take Cliff Palace for example. Cliff Palace has 150 rooms and 23 kivas, which leads archaeologists to estimate that about 100 to 150 people may have lived there. Now that's a good amount of people, but how does it compare to the Mesa Top sites? The biggest
2: communities would have been built on the Mesa Tops, and in some cases even earlier than that in some of the large canyon bottoms.
1: And and one of the biggest villages is, in fact, the Farview complex that visitors can go to. And you can get a sense of what a village might be like that has more of a spread-out layout on the mesa top.
0: The Farview complex, or Farview Sites, is located on Chapin Mesa, just past the Farview Lodge, and a few miles from the Chapin Mesa Archaeological Museum.
2: And there are several villages that make up what we call Farview Sites.
0: Today, various trails at Farview take you to the excavated and stabilized structures of Farview House, Pipe Shrine House, Coyote Village, Megalithic House, Farview Tower, and Farview Reservoir, a structure archaeologists believe to have been used to collect water. In total, archaeologists have identified nearly 50 villages within a square mile to form this larger community.
1: The earliest dates for Farview are in the 900s, and the ongoing research associated with the Farview community is indicating that people were living there into the early 1200s. And it's not clear yet when when they might have moved away from Farview, but at least for the initial occupation of the cliff dwellings, it overlapped with a place like Farview.
0: This means folks were living within Farview at least 200 years before the move into the cliffs began. And at least some of them remained at Farview after the cliff dwellings were constructed. During this time, this community was one of the most densely populated parts of the mesa. Now even with some structures excavated and stabilized, providing an exact number of rooms and population estimates is still challenging at Farview.
2: Most of those villages have not been fully excavated. And so you're really just looking at bumps and depressions, wall mounds and kiva depressions. And in the earlier villages, you're not even looking at that. So. I think it's really hard to really estimate room counts, but it is clear that some of these communities had much higher room counts than any of the cliff dwellings did. And that does make sense because these alcoves really were only so big. You couldn't make an alcove significantly larger than it already was. You were going to be restricted as to how many rooms you could possibly build.
0: And remember...
1: The tricky thing is, is that they're harder to see because they didn't have the same protection that the alcoves afforded. And, you know, with the uh, Pinon Juniper Forest, sometimes it's really difficult to see the sites. In the areas that have been recently burned, it gets a a little bit easier, but that also can be a challenging landscape.
0: Now, during this time period in the 1100s and 1200s, big changes were happening in the ancestral Pueblo world, both up at Mesa Verde and down in the valleys below
2: particularly during the same time during the cliff dwellings were built, then people were building large canyon head villages in the valleys below Mesa Verde. And so some fairly well-known places like San Canyon Pueblo had many hundreds of rooms. And so those villages would have been at least 500 rooms and over 100 kivas. And those villages are much, much larger than a place like Cliff Palace, which had about 150 rooms. So some of these late villages down in the surrounding valleys were quite a bit larger than the Mesa Verde cliff dwellings were.
1: Probably the largest ancestral Pueblo village is outside of the park.
0: Located in the vast valley below Mesa Verde lie the ancient footprints of a number of villages even larger than Farview. And one in particular, located near the Colorado-Utah border, is a place called Yellow Jacket Pueblo.
1: Yellow Jacket Pueblo is 100 acres, and probably somewhere between 800 and 1,300 people were living there.
0: That's 8 to 13 times the number of people living at Cliff Palace. Occupied from the mid-10 hundreds to the late 1200s, it contains more than 1,500 rooms, between 106 to 170 kivas, multiple towers, a great house, a great kiva, and a possible reservoir according to research and mapping done by the Crow Canyon Archaeological Center in the 1990s. Like many other villages in the Montezuma Valley, Yellowjacket Pueblo is not fully excavated, and it appears as mostly mounds of earth where the walls once stood. Sometimes piles of stone blocks can be spotted beneath years of high desert growth. It's amazing to think that these vast community centers that once dotted the mesa tops and canyon bottoms of the Mesa Verde region lay buried beneath centuries of wind-blown silt, shrubs, and yucca. And meanwhile, up at places like Mesa Verde, the cliff dwellings get all the fame. So why do they get all the fame?
2: (laughs) Well, I think the short answer to that is that they're stunning. They're just stunning. I think that they have great curb appeal. I think places like Cliff Palace or Longhouse and even even some of the really small cliff dwellings capture people's attention. You know, your imagination and your admiration just sort of take over. I think that cliff dwellings are beautiful. They're elegant and people just kind of can't help but wonder about the stories of, of those places and about the people who built them. But I think on a more practical note, maybe it's true that these buildings were protected by the alcoves themselves and they last longer. And so they're well-preserved and people can just look into them. And, and of course the preservation work that the National Park Service has done in many of these places contributes to that elegance. But I think that if a person is able to see something like an intact wooden ceiling or original plastered walls, and then if you factor in that in these dwellings, things like really well-preserved clothing or tools or other objects were found, it's just it's sort of a, an intimate snapshot into the past. And that's just something that a lot of the surface sites don't really have. They've been covered by many years of uh, soil deposition. And so they end up being a lot of rocks on the surface and some depressions where the kivas used to be. And they just don't really have that, that wow factor.
0: It's not difficult to understand why the cliff dwellings draw visitors from around the world and capture the attention of folks from all walks of life. And because the alcoves provided protection from the elements, people today are able to look at the cliff dwellings and picture what those very significant mesa top and canyon bottom villages would have looked like.
2: I think that despite the fact that cliff-dwelling communities do get much of the attention, in Mesa Verde at least, I think that people lived on the mesa tops for far longer than they lived in the cliffs. And those mesa top communities were probably really more the foundation of Pueblo culture than the cliff dwellings were. The cliff dwellings were really only occupied whole scale, at least what we mostly see in the cliffs, was built and lived in during about the last hundred years out of a 700-year occupation. And so they were not a long-term piece of this story as far as occupation time, even though they're the best preserved piece of the story compared to the Mesa Top Villages.
0: In past episodes, we've talked about the sacredness of the cliff dwellings how the descendant people view them as living, breathing villages that are still inhabited by their ancestors. Despite their hidden appearance on the landscape, these mesa-top and canyon-bottom villages are also sacred spaces to the descendants and carry the same importance as the cliff dwellings.
3: Visiting them, say, for example, the far view sites, I get the same connection when I've been inside Cliff Palace, Balcony House, or over on Weather Hill Mesa at Lawn House.
0: This is TJ. You may remember her voice from the first episode of this season.
3: My name is Thelma Jean Atsey. I go by TJ Atsey, and I'm a former park ranger at Mesa Verde National Park. I am a descendant from the
0: ancient people who used to live there. I am Laguna Pueblo. When TJ visits any ancient village at Mesa Verde, she says she always has a similar experience, and she encourages all who visit places like Farview to do so with respect
3: i feel the ancient one's presence i am standing on the same spot where people walked i can i can visualize and i can imagine footprints i can smell the cook stove i can smell a pot of stew i can you know smell the fires you know just fires simmering and just the the energy is still there even though there's nothing, you know, nothing around you. And when you look out into the distance and when you look across the canyon to the other, you know, Mesa at Mesa Verde, I see activity. I can see people walking. I can see groups of, you know, ladies, you know, ladies together. It's the same feeling like walking into someone else's home, that energy, that presence. That activity for me is still there, and it's very welcoming and very comforting to know that the ancient ones are, are still there. Even though you can't see them, their presence is definitely felt.
0: Regardless of their size and how many people lived within these alcove villages compared to the mesa tops and canyon bottoms, these spaces are homes. They are places where neighbors and families met for ceremonies, for daily chores, throughout warm and cold seasons, through monsoons and droughts. Every hamlet, community, and village, no matter the size or location within the Mesa Verde region, laid the foundation for the diverse cultures of their descendants who carry on their languages and traditions today. Mesa Verde Voices is a production of KSJD Community Radio in Cortez, Colorado. It is created in collaboration with Mesa Verde National Park and funded by the Mesa Verde Museum Association with a matching grant from the National Park Service. Our show is produced and edited by me, Kayla Woodward, and our music is by David Morella. Whether you're visiting Mesa Verde National Park, planning to visit, or simply wanting to learn more about this special place, check out the Mesa Top Loop Audio Tour put together by Mesa Verde National Park to hear more about the different periods of life on the landscape at Mesa Verde. Download or stream this multi-part tour now on Apple Podcasts or visit nps.gov forward slash m-e-v-e to find a transcript. You can also find that link on our website, mesaverdevoices.org, as well as additional info about Yellow Jacket Pueblo, Farview Sites, and Cliff Palace. Special thanks to Jonathan Till, Mark Varian, Spencer Burke, Chris McAllister, and Lyle Balenqua for your help in research for this episode. And thank you to Donna Glowacki, Jill Blumenthal, and TJ Atzi for sharing your stories with us. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And while you're there, leave us a review. It really helps us out. Thanks for listening.